0: Well, good morning. Wow, you guys are, is, is my mic working okay? <laughs> Not really, yeah. <laughs> and the guy in the back like this. <laughs> At 8 o'clock, that's what I do. How's my mic? Yeah, it's fine, whatever. Just start talking and get done. <laughs> yeah, I, we, I grew up in this area, born in D.C. And uh, grew up all over this area up here. And Donna's from Richmond. Virginia but uh when we were when we were living up here after we were married I worked for Fairfax County Police and Donna taught the Christian school here and we were fairly happy I was very happy she was fairly happy as things go in marriages and uh you know it's like when you ask a husband how's your marriage it's, fair. it's good and you ask the wife it's awful you know it's like wow huh But uh, And so I had no interest in missions. Donna talked about it all the time because she's from a Jewish family and she didn't hear the gospel until she was 19 in in the United States. And so when she came to Christ, she really wanted to go into the Middle East, actually, um, to reach out to Jewish people. And we ended up with Muslims, but that's okay. (laughs) It was close. Trying to get to Jerusalem, Jordan. Oh, that's not far. But um, and, but in the police department, I was really happy. And I learned a lot in the police department, actually. You know, God never wastes time in our lives. You know, we have, we, sometimes we have the sense that, oh, I wasted 10 years doing this. You can't. The only way you can waste 10 years is by not listening to God and what you're doing for those 10 years. That's what makes life boring. As you get in a routine, you don't really need God to interact with you particularly, because you can just do it. It's like the worst curse, probably, that we can get into. And, um, but in the police department, I learned a lot about just humanity <laughs> and, and how to talk to people that don't like you particularly or don't want you around, that sort of thing. But especially about communicating. And, and I, w- I was working in conjunction um, with Metropolitan Police, and we were doing a sort of a citywide <laughs> regional drug sting. And so my assignment, was, I had a really good informant, criminal informant, that, and he lived in southeast D.C., so I was spending a lot of time down there arranging large purchases of pharmaceutical products, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and so me and this guy were, were fairly close, fairly good friends. Me and, I don't like, didn't like to work with informants that did it because they had to, I liked it because we became friends. They're much better, much more reliable. And so we're, we were at an auto body shop down in southeast DC in the daytime. It was daytime. All we were doing was just meeting together to arrange what we were going to do, where we were going to make the arrest later in the week with the uniform guys and all that. So I was, I was just wearing shorts and a tank top. And uh, I, mean, I had my gun and badge, but I wasn't really anticipating any danger because it's daytime. We're just going to... I meet him standing in the parking lot behind this auto body shop. So it's no big, really threatening situation. So I meet him down there. I'm talking to him. We're working out the details of how we're going to do this thing. And, and, and he's, he's standing, and I'm looking over his shoulder into sort of the neighborhood that we're in, the auto body shops behind us. And as I'm talking to him, I see the gang in this area who we're going to hit pretty hard. They see us. They see us standing in the parking lot. And... Um, they could tell almost immediately that I didn't live in that neighborhood, pretty much. <laughs> uh, in my doctor shorts, you know, and topsiders, I just didn't fit in that well down there. But anyway, so they, so they're upset. They get upset, <laughs> and so they, I see them. They form together. There's about eleven of them, and they start coming across the street into the parking lot where I'm talking to this guy. And I said to him, hey, do you know those guys? And he looks, he turns around, he goes, yeah, I know who they are. He said, we're in big trouble. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm watching them come across the parking lot, and this, my guy, just takes off running. And, and like, there's no way I'm going to outrun these guys. There's no way. And so they come up to me, and they, they kind of get in a semicircle around me, and the, the leader is, is a really big guy, and he looked big, like, far away, and the closer he got, I was like, wow, that's a big guy, and so, so he, they come up to me, and, and he comes right up to, you know, in my face, and um, he said, what are you doing here, what are you doing down here, and I said, well, I'm just meeting with my friend, that's him jumping the fence over there, running away, um, and he said, well, this is our neighborhood, and we don't like, you know, we're not. Just wondering why you're here. It's dangerous here for someone like you. And I said, Yeah, I'm finding, I'm figuring that out. And he said, I want you to think about something right now. I want you to think about dying right now. Can you get that in your head? I was like, Yeah, that's not really hard for me to think. I can do that right now, pretty well. I can imagine that pretty well. And I'm thinking, I have a five-shot Smith and Wesson. If I was really good, like in James Bond, <laughs> I might get six of the eleven. And I'm still pretty much dead. <laughs> <clears throat> and so he says, he says, I want you to think about dying because, because you could die right now in this parking lot. We can make that happen. Do you understand that? And I said, I do understand that. He said, so I want you to lock in on dying right now. So I locked in on it. And I'm thinking, God, I don't want to lock in on dying. I want to lock in on living. So if there's a way out of here, I'd love to know it right now. And so the and the guy he's he's leaning in on me and he says he says do you, he, again he's like do you do you understand death do you understand what it is and I said I I get it he said because if you die right now you're gonna stand before a holy God and he's gonna ask you a question why should he let you into his heaven I said are you witnessing to me. Is that what you're doing? He said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm already a believer. And he turns to the other gang guys and he goes, see, evangelism is not that hard. (laughs) So, so you know, now I I live, you know, (laughs) 15 miles from this guy. But it's a whole different world. And I told him, I said, that is the worst evangelism you guys can do on a white guy in a parking lot down there. That is not the way to start. <clears throat> I said, if you came and knocked on the door in our neighborhood and your first question is, I want you to lock in on dying right now, you're, you're not going to go far in your gospel presentation. He said, well, that's the way we do it in our neighborhood. And I said, I understand. It works here. It doesn't work In Sterling Park, probably, I don't know. Now, if that guy who's an American, (laughs) native English speaker, can try and communicate with me in a way that I totally misunderstand what he's saying, how much more, when we go into the Muslim world, with what we're trying to say, which we think sounds pretty good, which to them sounds like death. Like the end of everything that they are. And, and we don't get it. You know, it's like we're not paying attention to what we're actually saying. So, yeah, like Ed said, you know, so we, I, I got recruited actually by the CIA, went out, left the police department, uh, got interested in going overseas with them, then read, read um, Elizabeth Elliot's book, This Life Soon Will Pass, Only Things Done for Christ Will Last. And I had to walk away from that because it was all about me and finances and prestige and so we walked away from that and we went into, the Lord said, I want you to go overseas for me. He used the CIA to, to get me looking in that direction because I wouldn't. And then once I was looking, he said, now there's something far greater than that out there for you and Donna and your kids. And so we moved to Indonesia. And so we go to a small island in Indonesia with our team of seven people. This small island, it's, it's uh, 2 million Sasak Muslims with 300 Saudi missionaries working among them, and and then we land on the sea, and uh, and our kids were uh, three, two, and ten months old when we get there. We're the only Westerners on the island, so we stand out pretty much. There's, we're easy to locate, and um, and so start working in the university, uh, Islamic University, and it's disastrous, really. Because I, I didn't know how to talk to Muslims. I mean, I went through seminary and all that, and was trained, and, but it didn't work. It's hard sometimes for us as Christians to say things that we do don't work. Because we're so sincere, and we love Jesus, and, but they still don't work. And so, it was a t- and I got arrested hey, for insulting the name of Muhammad, which is exactly what I was doing. Uh, they didn't have to make up anything, that's exactly what I was doing. I was insulting them as people. In my form of evangelism. Trying to tell them they're wrong about everything. And we're right about everything. And we're the American Christians. Come to show you the way. And they didn't like it. I don't, I'm not sure why. <laughs> I was so sincere. That they were wrong. And so then we left. We made, we made it through that situation. God intervened miraculously. And so we go back. For a second four years to a different place. And like Ed said. We met these people. These these men and women from different agencies, from different countries, and I'm telling you, they knew how to talk to Muslims. And so I started to learn from these men and women. They, was, they were amazing. And I started to think, wow, like when we came, our vision was like this. And now it's like, it's, it's, it's beyond all that we can ask or imagine in the Muslim world. It's incredible. So I got really excited because these guys trained us. And... You know, kind of got bolder and bolder about what we were doing. So we lived in this little neighborhood when we first got there for the, in our fifth year. We live in this little neighborhood, this little kampoon, they call them. And um, it's very poor. <laughs> and uh, th- this, this is where we ended up. We, were, we were, worked for an international school, and that's where they put us. We didn't stay long there, but that's where we started. And, uh, and so we were living in this little neighborhood. And in that little neighborhood where we lived, super crowded city six million people in this city. And um, there was this little girl, she was like fifth grade, that would, that would sometimes be playing with our kids who were about that age by this time. And, and uh, she was just really, she was Indonesian. She was uh, Sundanese, Indonesian Muslim. The Sundanese are 30 million very proud Muslims. And, uh, and so she would play with our kids and, sh- and she was able to, They could speak Indonesian a little bit, but she was able to learn English from them very rapidly. And I thought, wow, boy, she's got pretty incredible language acquisition skills. That's interesting. As I just watched her and her father kind of ran the houses in the little area where we lived, the little slum where we lived. He was kind of like a landlord, but it was actually his family that owned it all. But they were still very poor. And so we're moving to this house, and this little girl named Hani Irmawati is, is, is I, I see her from time to time because we're teaching in the school. And, um, yeah, she was fifth, sixth grade and in Indonesian system. And so, so I, I was like, wow, you know, I wonder if God has something for this girl. But we're living in the community, we're teaching in the school. And, the, and we had this, our house was pretty sad. And it didn't have screens in it. And so we, we would get, like, massacred by mosquitoes at night. So Donna's, you know, driving her crazy. She says, can you go to the landlord and just ask him for screens? This is not a common thing there, actually, to have screens. And uh, ask him for screens and, you know, just explain the situation, ask him for screens. And I said, sure, yeah, I know him fairly well. And so, but my Indonesian is not really good at all. It's fair at this point. And so I go to him. Now, so my com- what I want to communicate to this guy is that we need screens because at night, you know, lots of mosquitoes are coming in and biting us. Them. That's my plan in my brain. I got it, and I have to think about it in the other language to say it correctly. So I'm thinking about it, and I go over there, because screens is not a common thing there, so I have to kind of explain it. So I'm thinking, about how do I do that? How do I do that in Indonesian? So what I'm doing is really basically I'm just translating English into Indonesian, which is not the way to speak another language just to translate your ideas into other vocabularies, not the way to communicate. Um, So I I get over there, and I I sit down with him. We're drinking tea. And as I start to talk, I, I mix two words up. I mix up the word for mosquito, which is nyamuk, with the word for monkey, which is monyet. Now that really throws off the conversation. So I say to him, he speaks no English. So I say to him, you know, I love, we, we love this house <laughs> that we're living in, <laughs> which is a lie. I, I started off with a lie. And, uh, and I said, but here's the problem. At night, monkeys are coming in the windows. <laughs> He's like, okay, we live in the middle of a city of five million people. <laughs> There's not even any trees. He's like, what did you just say? What? What? I said, at night, monkeys are coming into our windows. He goes, monkeys? Yeah, yeah, monkeys. Now, I get a little agitated because, oh, he's going to give me the runaround on this. He's not going to want to put in screens, so he's going to pretend like he doesn't know what I'm saying. So I'm getting frustrated. Don't give me the old oh, monkey routine, you know. <clears throat> and he said, I, I've never seen a monkey around here. Now I'm really mad. Are you kidding me? There's thousands of them here. What are you talking... Every night they come out, it's unbelievable. And he said, are you... Monkeys? And I'm like, yes. He said, how are they getting in? They, what, they fly. What do you think? How do, how, do, how do they get in? He goes, are you saying monkeys are flying in your window at night? Thousands of them? Yes. Gosh. He said, well, what is... What are they doing inside? I mean, when they get in, when they fly in, what do they do? They bite us. I mean, all over our bodies, they bite us. What do you think they do? So I'm getting madder and madder because he won't respond to me. And he's getting more and more frustrated because he thinks I'm just trying to make a fool of him. So we're both furious at each other. And then finally, my brain goes, oops, one yet. Oh, no. Yamuk, yeah, oh. And I said, oh, not monkeys. I'm sorry. Not monkeys. Mosquitoes. And he goes, oh. Can you put in screens for them? Yes. Boom. There we go. One wrong word. Whole oh, thing goes bizarre. We're fighting. We're going to kill each other. Because he doesn't know what I'm saying. I don't know what he's hearing. And and unfortunately, that's how we do missions a lot of the time. We take this sort of Western Christian message to the world. And when we mean to say mosquitoes, we're saying monkeys and they don't get it. And we will not change. We will not change our strategy. So just what I thought I'd hit this morning is... um, Ed kind of mentioned it. This is Mark chapter 4. For two weeks, I've been thinking about. I I knew I was going to speak here, and so I was thinking about. You know, Lord, what what do you want to say to Rest in Bible Church? If you if you were if Jesus was standing up here, what would He say to you? And what Lord, what would you really? What do you have for them? Because we travel all the time and we train all the time all over the world. At this point, we're getting ready to move back to Palestine and to live in um, the fall. But, um, we've been traveling for two years, really working with mission agencies and, and churches, trying to help them reach out to the Muslim community, and that's what we've been doing here in March, and it's really been fun. But when I, we speak in church, I try really hard not to do a canned, you know, just presentation, which is easy to do because you travel so much, it's hard to, like, prepare new stuff all the time, but I try to, and so last night we got home around midnight, and, uh, and so I was, read, and I was reading through this passage that I thought I, was what I wanted to do. But then, then this morning, I just was like, Lord, can I, this is, I, is this clear? This is what you want to say? And uh, it wasn't. And so I have this, this pastor friend in Indonesia. He's a Canadian guy, fantastic guy. He, he actually runs an entire mission agency out of Malaysia now. <clears throat> and he, he built up the international church in the city we were in in amazing numbers and he came in one Sunday morning we met in this big hotel and he stood up in front of the congregation 500 people and he said I got nothing he goes I've been praying all week I got nothing to say can you imagine that (laughs) and so he goes that means someone in here must have something really important to say so I'm just going to sit down and if you got to say it say it and he sat down (laughs) it's like we pay you to fake it if you have nothing Come up with something. But the guy that stood up, was visiting from the U.S., was awesome. He was incredible, what he had to say. But when the the pastor sat down, when Brem sat down, it was like, everyone everyone in the congregation was, oh no, do I have something to say? Am I supposed to say something? That was the coolest maneuver on Brem's part. Because he really threw it like, it's our fault that he's got nothing to say. Well, you better have something to say. I'm sitting down. Boom, he sits down. But anyway, so (laughs) I was thinking, should I do that to him? That would be funny. (laughs) Ed introduces me. I "I got nothing. Thanks for having me. (laughs) But, oh, Lord. So this passage came to my mind. Um, Mark chapter 4. And it's all about hearing and listening. Which is what we're not very good at as Christians. We're good at talking. We're good at memorizing. We're good at... um, learning facts but we're not really good at listening to god which is what ed prayed so it's interesting so mark chapter 4 how important it is to jesus that you not only listen but that you come back to him and ask him what in the world did you mean by that so this in chapter 4 it says again verse 1 again jesus began to teach beside the lake And a very great crowd gathered about him so that he got into a ship in order to sit in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was at the lakeside on the shore. And he taught them many things in parables, illustrations or comparisons, put beside truth to explain them. And in his teaching, he said to them, and he tells the very well-known parable of the sower. So he's teaching in um, illustrations and comparisons put beside truths in order to explain them. So that's the style of rhetoric that Jesus employs. Why? That's really interesting. Why does he do parables? So we know the parable of the sower. We know it. So down in um, verse 10. And as soon as he was alone, those who were around him So it's not just the disciples, but more. Those who were around him with the twelve began to ask him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been entrusted the mystery of the kingdom of God. That is the secret counsels of God, which are hidden from the ungodly. But for those outside of our circle, everything becomes a parable. In order that they may indeed look and look but not see and perceive, and may hear and hear, but not grasp and comprehend, lest lest they should turn again, and in their willful rejection of the truth, their sin should be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you not discern and understand this parable? How then is it possible for you to discern and understand all the parables? He teaches them parables so that people, listen, cannot understand what he's talking about. Wow. Why? And then he, if you read through this passage, look down at 23. Verse 23. Uh, yeah, 23. If any man has ears to hear, let him be listening and let him perceive and comprehend. And he said to them, be careful what you are hearing. The measure of thought and study you give to the truth you hear Will be a measure of virtue and knowledge that comes back to you, and more besides will be given to you, who hear. For to for to him who has will be more given, and from him who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. Then he starts to talk about the kingdom of God again, and then all the way down to thirty four, in this great passage. Go through it, read it. It's really fascinating. Verse 34, he did not tell them anything without a parable. But privately to to his disciple, to those who were particularly his own, he explained everything fully. So, it seems like, wow, it's like we have an opportunity here to be in one of two groups. Those who hear and hear but never perceive and understand And those who hear, like the disciples, like the others around Jesus, and go back to Jesus and say, "What in the world did that mean?" And He explains everything to them fully. Which one are you? you, I mean, do you come on Sunday and you hear and you hear and you hear and hear and you go back out there? It's pretty much the same deal every week. I mean, can you can you encounter God and walk away going, "Yeah, well, it's Monday now." That was awesome on Sunday, or not awesome, or whatever. And now I'm back in it, like that. Or, or, or can you be w- with God, and, and you hear, like, the Sunday sermon, or you're reading something in the Bible, and you go, Man, will you fully explain that to me? I don't really get that. And you learn to listen to God, so that everything that he's saying to you isn't just a parable, that you're like, that's sweet. I'm like, wow, that's life-altering like that. And then you get into this lifestyle here that Jesus is challenging the disciples and those around him to live in a way with him where you do not walk away without understanding. You do not walk away with... You come back to him, and you you seek understanding on what you heard, and you listen again. And I'm telling you, you, if that becomes the habit of your life you cannot imagine what God will do with you because you're asking him to explain things to you. What do we really know about God? What do we really know about Jesus? So I, I was just sharing this yesterday in, our, in the seminar we were doing, but remember that when you, read, when you read the Bible, especially when you're reading about Jesus, how Jesus talks to people, he's showing you how he talks to people. That means probably that's how he's going to talk to you. You ever think about that? Jesus is not just, I'm going to use some cool parables. He's like, this is the way I'm talking to people. This is why. So when you pray and God speaks to you, this might be how he does it. So, for example, I shared this yesterday. I'll share it again. Excuse me. Me, for those who were there yesterday. But when the disciples come to Jesus, this is just an example to think about, and they say, Jesus, we are concerned about money. We left our jobs for you, our amazing fishing careers for you. And we were on the way up in those careers, by the way. And, uh, and you know, we're basically broke. Could you help us with the money thing? Understand it? Now, if... if I was asking that question today in the Christian church. We'd have a seminar to go to. We'd have, you know, we'd have books to read about good stewardship and all this sort of thing. But Jesus doesn't do that. Here's what he says. Money. Oh, you guys are worried about money? Oh, okay. See that bird over there? And they're like, what? The bird. See the bird over there? We're asking you about money. I know. See the bird over there? Yes. That bird? Doesn't even have a job. He's like you. He doesn't even have a job. And he eats every day because God feeds him. And you're more valuable to God than that bird. I would not worry about money. How's that for an answer? Okay, thanks. Nothing about savings. Nothing about you should have six months in the bank. Nothing. Birds is what he's talking about. So the disciples try again. Well, okay, let's talk about clothing. We're wearing the same stuff we wore when you called us. And it's fairly out of date and out of fashion. And we want to be contextual in downtown Jerusalem, and this is not what you wear. Could you address the issue of clothes to us, please? Oh, clothes, clothes. Oh, I thought you were talking about money. That's what I was doing the bird thing. Clothes, clothes. See that flower right there? Yeah, mm-hmm. See it? Look at that flower. Yeah. That flower is beautiful. Solomon never looked that good. And that flower is going to fade away. You're way more important than that flower. I wouldn't worry about clothes. Okay, thanks. Got it. Boom. Got it. Listen, you guys. Listen. Look, just seek first the kingdom of God. That's all you really need to do. If you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all this will be taken care of. And they're like, "Kingdom of God? What is that?" See that field over there? Ah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we pray and God starts talking about, and we're listening, God, you know, what do you want me to understand about the situation I am? And and a bird enters your mind. Don't tell God. Don't talk about birds to me. Jesus talks a lot about birds. As examples of things. And flowers. And fields. And women. And searching houses. And jewels. That's how he talks. And the reason we can't hear him is because we're trying to tell him how to talk to us. Don't talk to me about birds. Talk to me about a financial seminar I should attend. What are you talking about birds. Because he wants you to come to him and say, Why are you talking about birds? Help me understand. And he will fully explain it to you. And it will be the most amazing thing you've ever heard. Do you have a communication with God like that? So we're in Indonesia, and this little girl's running around. Her dad and I are mending our relationship after the monkey fiasco. And so so we're there for a couple of years, and, and by the time Hani, the girl, is ready to go into ninth grade, I don't know, it's just like the Lord really had something for her. And so... I, me and Don and I were praying. It's like, Lord, wh- why do we think that you have something for her? Will you explain this to us? Because, I mean, we uh, she's obviously very bright and clever and all that stuff. But it's illegal for that student to go to a foreign international school. She has to stay in the terrible school system she's in. She's a Sundanese woman, which means she'll the highest she can really aspire to is to be a maid in some expat's house. That's all any women in her group, her tribe, have ever done. None of them go to college. And by, I don't know, in another year, she's going to be forced to, be, to marry some guy in this neighborhood. And that's her life, and there's really no way out of it. Why are we thinking so much about her? And the Lord said, I want her, I w- I want her to be the example to all Sudanese women, her. And I want you to help her do it. Really, how will we do that? And we just had this idea of, of just like taking a, they call it murpati is the word in Indonesian. It's a kind of bird. It's a symbol of freedom. And we just had this idea of just holding this murpati in our hand and just going like that to it. Like that. And I, and I was praying about it. Don was praying about it. And, and we were praying separately about it. And, we, when we were talking about together, I said, I've been, I've been praying for honey. She said, I have to. I said, is Jesus talking about a bird on this one? And she so goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the bird thing too. Marpati, yeah. Like this, yeah, like that. Well, we better do that. Because that's incredibly important from what I read of the way Jesus talks to people. The thing is, we didn't know what it meant. Now, we could walk away going for, from that going, Oh, yeah, I was trying to pray and I was letting a bird go freak. Boy, that's like indigestion or I don't know. It's just who knows what that is. It's not God probably. God doesn't speak. He doesn't speak like that if he even speaks. so And you walk away and you never understand the meaning of the parable. It's exactly what Jesus is warning against. You have the ears, you can hear, but you never perceive and understand. Because that's not what your relationship with God is like. Running back to him and saying, what in the world are you talking about? I want to do that, but how? It's impossible. And let him explain it to you. So, So Donna and I are praying about this, and we're like, okay, we've got to set her free. That's what we're supposed to do with this particular person. So how do we do that? You know, so now, okay, God's given us a vision of... What he wants done, now we bring it down practical. Okay, what does that mean? How, do we, how can we help her? Well, the best thing we can do for her really is to get her a decent education. Because the system she's in, you have to pay the professors, the teachers for grades. She's from a very poor family. Only the wealthy people in the community can buy the grades to get out. Um, and that's how the system just stays the way it is and never changes. So I go to her school, try and talk to them. They don't want to talk to me. I said, I just, I just want to help her study. And they tell me how much it'll cost for her to get out of high school. <laughs> they don't care if she learns anything. And I said, I'm not paying you to let her out of high school. I'm asking you how I can help her. Boom, they slammed the door on me. So, not there. Lord, how do we help her? Put her in your school. It's against the law. God. You know how you explain things to God? Like he doesn't know? <laughs> I'm just informing you. It's against the law. I know. I'm one, I'm sort of like I'm um, omnipresent, you know. So I kind of know what's going on everywhere more than you do. And uh, and uh, where were telling God facts, what move to Baghdad? There's a war there. Oh, oh, you're right. Never mind. <laughs> I was wrong. You're right. Stay home. And so, so I go to our principal, the headmaster of our international school, and it is illegal. And so I he's a believer, and I'm sitting with him. I'm like, I, you know, I I feel like God wants me to really help me and Donna to help this girl Hani. And um, so, can, is there a, well, let's figure out a way to get her in our school. And he's like, wow, you know, they, they come and check our school all the time to make sure there's no Indonesian nationals in here. And I said, how about if she's a visitor? She's a visitor for the day. He said, yeah, that's legal. And she's a visitor for the day every day. <laughs> he goes, hey, <laughs> all right. So every day she visited our school. For four years. <laughs> ninth through 12th grade. And we taught her everything that we could. I mean, we, we, tried to, we taught her how to use a computer. We taught her everything. Taught her literature. She just basically followed me around from ninth through 12th grade as a visitor to the school. And I would say, why don't you visit this class now? And why don't you visit that class? And so she gets through. She goes to the Indonesian school for half a day then she gets on a bus and comes to our school for the rest of the day and me and Donna stay late at night with her helping her catch up and she's brilliant I mean she's amazing and and as that's going on we start to share our faith with her because she gets discouraged at times and we're like honey come on now you can do this come on you can learn this I mean you know I'm teaching her uh, classical literature the Sundanese whose only goal in life is to be a maid in the house of a foreigner. And I'm teaching her classical literature and she gets discouraged and, and you know, she starts crying and and, um, and and so I was like come on honey, come on, you can do it. Let's ask God to give you strength to help you do this. And so we taught her to pray. Now she's a, they're very strong Muslims. That, their community is very strong Muslims. And so we taught her how to pray and and she started, so we, we can't really do direct evangelism with her, but she was just with us every day, and I would say, this is what we do when we have trouble learning something. And we taught her to pray, and she would never pray out loud with us, but she would, we would pray with her, and we prayed, you know, Muslim style, so she would feel comfortable, which means she has to cover her head. Donna would cover her head, and then, they, and then we would pray on our knees on the floor with her. And as she's growing, you know, becoming this, beautiful young woman, and, um, and so around 11th grade, she's going into 12th, I, I said to her, honey, you know what I think? I Here's what I think. I think God wants you set free of where you're from, and I explained to her how we saw her as a murpati going like that, and she wept because to her and her culture, that's the most beautiful image you could have. Isn't that interesting? The image that God gave us is the most meaningful to her. I didn't know that image. How would I know that image unless God shows it to me? That's the beauty of being in communion with God. He knows more than you do. I want to reach this person, how do I do it? Tell me how to do it. And he tells you how, and you do it, and it works. Not telling God, this is the way you reach Muslims, God. Don't tell me how to do it any differently. This is the way it's done. Even though it hasn't worked in 1,400 years, it's still the way to do it. God's like, go ahead. Ears to hear but can't perceive or comprehend. Wow, what kind of relationship is that with God? And so I, I told her that and I said, Honey, here's what I think. Here's, here's what I believe. I think God wants you free of here. And I think he wants you in the University of the United States. That's what I think. Her father makes $800 a year. She has nothing. And she looks at me and she says, That's impossible. That is just impossible. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is impossible. I said, but let's do this. Let's, I'll, I'll do it. Let, I'm going to write a letter to five universities that I think would be interested in someone like you. I'll write five letters to five universities, and I'll ask them um, to pay your tuition 100% and to fly you there to their school. Do you have a suitcase? No, and a suitcase. I'll ask them for a suitcase. And she's like, you know, you're insane. Gila is the word, crazy, yeah, whatever. Now what I'm doing is sharing my faith with her. Do you see? I have faith that God can do that she doesn't. So what I'm doing, I'm saying, let's just use my faith. Let's use my faith and I'll do it because I think God can do it. And as he does it, the faith will become your own. See, it's not an evangelism event. This is living and sharing your faith with people who are trapped and lost and discouraged and hopeless in life. We're the light of the world. We know the kingdom. We're kingdom people. Wherever we go, we bring the kingdom. So she says, okay, that's no, that doesn't, no risk to me. And so I write the letter to five universities. And I say, we have a student in our school. Our school is a nationally accredited, internationally accredited school. So we have a really good reputation. And so we have a girl in our school. I explain the circumstances. She has no money. We have no standardized test course to show you because she's not officially a student in our school. She's a visitor every day for four years. So we have nothing to send you in terms of transcripts at all. All we have is the... Here's the names of all the teachers in our school. They're all really good, accredited teachers. And all of them have written a letter of recommendation for her. So what we're asking is you to trust us that this is a woman that you want in your university. And if you believe in women's rights and women's empowerment, put your money where your mouth is and give this girl a 100% scholarship and a suitcase. It's exactly what I wrote. Five universities. And so, and I sent it to Christian universities because I figured that was the best shot to start with. Because Christians, you know, love Muslims and want to help them. You know, love your enemies and that sort of thing. So, so and I share her the letter. I said, this is what I'm sending. I said, now let, let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit of God to be on these letters as we send them and watch what God can do. She's like, you're crazy. So I said, well, I'll pray. So I pray, you know, Lord, open the door. Let this girl go free. We know you want her free. Let her go free. Just show us how to do it. Send the letters. You get three back. You're an idiot. Thank you very much. Christian universities. There's no way we're taking someone like that. Sorry. Mm. One sends a letter back. And it's a university up in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they say, wow, we like the letter. You know, we like what you're doing there. Um, We'll give her 80% what we can for four years, 80%. So I show it to her. She's like, yay!" Oh. and I go, and I said, what good is 80%? What are you going to get? Where are you going to get the other 20%? And there's no suitcase involved in this one. And I want a suitcase. And I tear it up and I throw it in the trash. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, we have one left. Don't ask God for 100% and take 80 That's a bad relationship with him. When you ask for something, wait till he does all of it. Are you just going to trust God for 80% the rest of your life? The person you marry is 80% of what you wanted or hoped for or dreamed of? Or less? I'm not sure what percentage I was for Donna. <laughs> i have to ask her. And, and so I, t- I threw it in stress. And so I, we, I said, we have one more. I said, let's pray for the one more. And she says to me, let me pray for this one. It's like, "Oh, okay. And she prays. We get down on the floor. She covers her head. We get down on the floor. She puts her head on the floor. And she says, she says, God, I know that Jesus is important. And I know the way that Jamie and Donna and their kids and the other students here talk about Jesus is that he's more than just a prophet. He's, in, he's some way to you. So I'm asking in his name, the name of Aisa al-Masiyah. Would you open this way for me? And I was like, done in heaven, right there. I know it. I know it. As Ed prayed, we, we're here before the heavenly realms. Boy, what a beautiful prayer. Oh my gosh. I like God couldn't wait to answer that one. I praise like, a oh, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but honey, boy, here's this Muslim woman seeking God through Jesus. What's he gonna say? No? No. Wait, are you trying to bring Sharia law to the United States? No. That's how we think as Christians. What are you? You're not telling the truth. You're just trying to take over the country. Wow. Change the station, will you? Man, turn that channel. So, the letter comes back from Azusa Pacific University in California. And it's from the president of the university. And he says, uh, loved your letter. Beautiful letter. He said... um, Unfortunately, we've given out all of our money for the upcoming year. He said, we'd, we'd love to have someone like Hani. He said, and, but this is where we stand in our fiscal year. He said, however, I am the new president of this university. And he said, I was thinking about starting a presidential scholarship, just something. I was praying about what to do. He said, we want Hani to be the first presidential scholarship student at our university. We're sending 100% for her. And a suitcase. Yeah, <laughs> I show it to her. She bursts into tears, and she's she's like, "Oh, God is so powerful! Oh my, why? Because I went through Jesus. Yes." And so we're, she's all excited. She's like, "And I get my suitcase." It was like the suitcase was equal to the tuition. <laughs> And so, and, and so <laughs> I'm filling out the application with her, it's a Christian, you know, liberal arts school, and she's so beautiful, because, and so now she's really, like, locked on to understanding that, who Jesus is, and, the first, and so we're filling out the application, and she's, they write, what, how, what's your understanding of Jesus? He's the way, that's what she puts, he's the way into everything that is out there, beyond our ability, beautiful, and she's talking about how she met Jesus, and how he, blah, 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 and... And, and then at the end, they said, what denomination are you? Muslim. <laughs> and that freaked them out in the admission office. They're like, whoa, what? <laughs> and they called me, and they said, okay, we've never had a Muslim with a testimony like this. They calls himself a Muslim. I said, trust me, this girl is unbelievable. So, when, so the day comes, and she's got her suitcase, her brand-new suitcase, and we take her to this train station. She's 17. Put her on the train to go by herself to L.A. She's never been outside of her city. And off she goes. And we're so, God, please protect her. We just did this. Now will you just protect her? So she gets there. She gets to the university. And we're like, you know, because this is back before all the internet and all that stuff was really out there. And so we just have to wait to hear from her. And, um, and, And there's a lot more in the story. It was really beautiful, but I don't have time to actually during the time we were preparing her to go, they started taking her to a witch doctor and beating her because she was start talking about Jesus. And, just, and so she would come in, and she came in one night and said, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting beat up every Thursday night by this witch doctor guy. And I said, I'll tell you how to take care of him. When he picks up that stick to hit you, you say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Just say that in the end. She's like, well, the scholarship worked. I'll try that, you know. And she did it, and the guy couldn't hit her. He froze like this. And then the whole village decided, leave her alone. She's got some kind of power with God. So that was her testimony. Anyway, so she goes off. We get a letter from her. She's after her, actually after her first year. She's the number one student in the university. She travels with the professor around the country recruiting international students. And um, she goes through the four years. Very well, does very well. And two years ago, Don and I stood at Azusa Pacific watching her get her MBA graduation degree. She now lives in her city with her husband and new son, and she teaches Sundanese women how to be free in the name of Jesus. Now, that's how we can live. Yeah, amen. Now, don't don't you want to live like that? I do. I want to live like that. Here's how you do it. Listen to God. Live in communion with God because that's the kind of stuff He will do in your life. That's the way He will use you in the lives of other people. Nobody can reach Muslims like Hani and her husband can do. Nobody. I could never do it. Man, she can do it. She's the one. You be the one. Listen to God. Do what He says. Don't tell Him what He says. Listen to what He says and do it. And I'm telling you, this life in the kingdom is unbelievable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Hani and her husband and their beautiful son. Lord, for the work that she does among Sundanese women in Java. It's it's incredible. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to live like that. Father, that you would make us people that hear your voice. And we read your word, we hear your voice and, and we ask, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the people around me? And that we would live lives as true kingdom people, impacting the world, sharing our faith, and giving you all the praise and glory for the great God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.